This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, the ramifications of the war in Europe, in Ukraine, are global, certainly most severe in Europe, which faces fundamental energy and security issues now. In the United States as well, this has abruptly focused minds on NATO, on Russia, and on China's role as well. And what is happening in Ukraine is not lost on Asia, where smaller countries are cognizant of the precedent of a big power invading a smaller, and one may add, non-nuclear neighbor. So today I have with me three guests. Yun Sun, formerly a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, formerly the International Crisis Group's China Analyst in Beijing, is currently a senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia Programme and director of the China Programme at the Stimson Center here in Washington, D.C. Her expertise is in Chinese foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and China's relations with neighboring countries and authoritarian regimes. Certainly that last part particularly relevant in this case. Yun Sun, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And from Bangkok, Thailand, where he is visiting at the moment, I'm joined by Curtis Chin, a Milken Institute Asia Fellow and former U.S. Ambassador to the Asian Development Bank. He wears several hats and through his advisory firm, Riverpeak, he advises a range of startups and impact investors in Asia. Curtis, thank you. I love that you're in Bangkok. <laughs> Always great to be with you. And from Singapore joining me, joining us, is Simon Tay, currently Chairman of the Independent Think Tank, Singapore Institute of International Affairs, also a tenured Associate Professor of International Law at NUS, National University of Singapore, and he has taught at Harvard, Fletcher and Yale. He's a senior consultant as well at Wong Partnership, an Asian law firm, and he's also an ambassador for Singapore, currently accredited to Greece on a non-residential basis. Thank you, Simon, as well. And this is a very good uh, segue into my first question to you, since you just returned from Europe, where I believe Part of what you were doing was explaining the ramifications for Southeast Asia of the war in Ukraine. I'm curious, what was your message? What are the concerns? What is the view from Southeast Asia that you conveyed out there? Well, good morning, Namal. Yes, I returned last night from Europe where I had the honor of speaking at a Greek think tank to a European audience. But I must say, rather than just speaking, I was trying to listen. The Greeks are very international. They know the Balkans and the, the area of the world very well. My first impression is that Europe is very seized of this issue. They really feel it very strongly uh, as a question of security, of values, and whatever the energy prices, they seem at the present willing to pay it. And I would say that in a sense, they are looking to see whether the rest of the world is equally minded, that we are all prepared to do something. The second part is that while I think you, Europeans are more united with America than before, I'm not sure there won't be some daylight between their positions as the situation develops. So well, that part we'll have to see. But at the moment, at the high point, Putin has brought the West together by his actions. The second point, I think very strongly, is that they seem to be overreading China or misreading it compared to my view. Um, I think that this weekend, the call between the US and President Xi is critical because otherwise Europeans and others are assuming that this friendship without limits might really mean that China is weighted strongly on one side, Russia's side. Whereas I, based on the reading of the UN votes, see China is trying to be a little bit more nuanced. And I believe, and I'd be delighted to talk about it, that China and Asia's interests would be significantly hit if China was to come in very strongly on Russia's side and fall prey 
to the very strong Western sanctions. And this will be critically bad for Asia and for China itself, and not good for the world. At the moment, though, Namal, and I'll stop here and let the other people speak. Really, I think that for Southeast Asia particularly, at this moment, we are relatively buttressed, uh, buffet, buffeted uh, by the global winds. But yet we have a dynamic growth of our own that's coming up. So there's inflation which is starting before this and will go up further. There are energy prices which are going up and will go up further. But here in Southeast Asia, because of the reopening after last year's terrible surge, there is a strong hit, uh, wind pushing us forward of growth. So I, I tend to think that unless this escalates further, unless he goes beyond Ukraine, etc., it should be containable for us in Asia. They will feel the huge impact in Europe. We will feel a buffeting wind and ripple, but it will be secondary. Interesting. Ambassador Chin, one of the big questions in people's minds is where does this leave U.S. policy on the Indo-Pacific? There is, of course, the question of how much bandwidth the U.S. has to focus on the Indo-Pacific, with China seen as a big strategic competitor and a nuclear-armed North Korea always happy to rattle some cages. We do have a Quad summit, that's India, Australia, Japan, and the U.S. coming up soon in Japan. We've also seen a call shot down quite swiftly by former Japanese Premier Shinzo Abe for a revision of Japan's constitution to allow stationing of nuclear weapons on Japanese soil. So the genie is sort of out of the bottle and Ukraine has not helped the cause for nuclear non-proliferation. What have you picked up from your current visit to Singapore and Thailand? How is this crisis in Europe perceived there? And what, in your opinion, should the United States do going forward in terms of the Indo-Pacific? Nirwal, first, uh, great to be with all of you. What, what a wealth of questions. Um, uh, you know, just quickly, I can say, you know, uh, as I think about the Southeast Asia, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, um, it's clearly been a very mixed bag uh, in terms of reaction. So, indeed, I spent two weeks in Singapore with my Milken Institute colleagues, but meeting with a mix of people in government and business and media. Um, and I think there was actually uniform feeling from many of my Singaporean friends that Singapore needs to be very strong on this issue. You know, and, and on one end, I would say of ASEAN, we have Singapore, which really for the first time in many years, in a way took unilateral sanctions uh, against Russia. You know, they didn't wait for a UN call for sanctions. Uh, and as one Singaporean, uh, let's say, a member of Singapore Inc. said to me, Singapore has to speak up. Uh, because there is a precedent. What if one day uh, a wealthier, bigger, or not so much wealthier, but a bigger country in Southeast Asia said, while well, Singapore is such an amazing place, it should be part of our country. And so if Singapore doesn't speak up now, uh, who would speak up for Singapore if something terrible also happened uh, in our region of the Asia Pacific? But, you know, I flew from Singapore to here in Thailand, uh, where Thailand is kind of in that, that middle group of countries. Uh, I can't say that I've met anyone that says what is going on in Ukraine is a good thing, uh, despite some of the rhetoric that you might see in social media uh, and online. But countries in the middle want to be neutral. Uh, and then on the far end of uh, our ASEAN 10 member nations would be Myanmar. I think Myanmar repaid the favor uh, to Russia when Russia was one of really the first major power to recognize the military junta after the February 2021 coup. Uh, Myanmar welcomed uh, 
uh, what Russia was doing. So, so for me, when I think about the 10 nations of Southeast Asia, uh, of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, we see the great strength and the weakness of ASEAN. There is no consensus on what is going on uh, with regards to Russia uh, and Ukraine, even with regards to the language. You know, very clearly some countries will say, as I believe is very much the case, this is a war. This is an invasion, something that maybe a China or other countries might not say, but is clearly what is happening on the ground. Uh, specific to your question, Nirmal, about the U.S. Uh, and this region of the world, um, it's a tough one for the United States. Uh, uh, thinking about, you know, if we think of the region as a whole, you know, President Biden has called for this next U.S. ASEAN summit. I don't know if there's a new date uh, uh, set yet, um, but uh, it would have been the end of March, uh, this meeting in the United States of the 10 leaders of the ASEAN nations, uh, changing because of schedules. Uh, but for me, my hope is that whenever that meeting happens, and before and after that meeting, that the United States recognizes that engagement with Southeast Asia must be beyond more than issues of security and military issues. Now, I've long called for a U.S business pivot uh, to Asia. Because when you think about why countries in the region really, in a sense, don't want to take sides, uh, every country is going to do what they think is best for its own citizens. Uh, and often that comes back to economics and business. So I struck by you know Simon's comments about, you know, it's kind of like we're in the peripheries. Uh, um, I'd be really maybe a more uh, cautious in saying that, you know, maybe Southeast Asia won't be impacted. Because right here in Thailand, uh, it's like the, I don't know, do I say the double or triple whammy? We had the, the COVID impact. We had the impact of an economic shutdown. And now Thailand, which traditionally has had 20 to 25% of its economy based on tourism, you know, is clearly not getting Chinese tourists anytime soon. But in the top five, have typically been Russian tourists. And so the anecdotes and stories out of this country often now relate to not just Russians not coming, but how does the Russian government, how does the Thai government handle Russians stuck here whose maybe credit cards are no longer working uh, because of these sanctions based uh, on what Russia is doing in the Ukraine. Uh, so clearly the U.S. needs to up its game here in Southeast Asia, but it also needs to up its economic game uh, for this relationship to grow and develop as President Biden has committed to. Very interesting. I'm glad you brought up Russian tourists, uh, Russian visitors in Thailand, because I know that if you go to you know places like uh, Pattaya and Phuket, there are some streets which just seem to have just Russian Cyrillic lettering. The restaurants have menus in Russian. It's, it's quite fascinating. And, and I'll ask Simon to respond to your comments on ASEAN later. But before that, I want to get to Yunsun. Yunsun, China's role has obviously come into great prominence here. And it, this is seen as a watershed moment. We've had President Biden and President Xi speaking with each other. We've got China saying this war is obviously not good for anyone and they have urged talks and they say talks are underway, though, of course, with no discernible outcome at the moment. The U.S. wants China to play a larger role. Can you give us a sense of China's view and situation and what the ramifications may be for the U.S.-China relationship? Mm. Thank you, Namal. Um, well, to begin with, I think China has been put in a very uncomfortable position. On one hand, Putin and she just reached their joint statement that promised no limits cooperation on February 4th. On the other hand, there's this Russian invasion of Ukraine, which China has refused to call it an invasion. But on the other hand, there is a matter of sovereignty and territorial integrity, which is enshrined as a foundation of China's foreign policy principle. So I think China is put in many different directions. However, I would say that a, a rapid or a decisive change of position on China 
uh, by China on Russia is unlikely to happen for two reasons. The first one is when China looks down the road that by the end of this war, Russia probably will be re- reduced to an international pariah. But the theme of the international relations, at least from the Chinese perspective, is going to remain to be the U.S.-China strategic competition. So when China looks at down the road, while U.S. will still see China as a number one adversary and the number one strategic challenge, and China cannot help but feel that, well, if we completely abandon Russia, then we have very few people to turn to. So Russia might be a bad actor in this Ukraine war, but still China's partner. The second reason is uh, related to China's domestic politics. We know that China is going to have 20th Party's Congress this year, uh, later in the fall, and President Xi is uh, expected to ink his third term, which is not without domestic controversy and opposition. So the problem with this Russia situation is it's too close to the February 4th joint statement. If China has a rapid change of position now, it's equate, it, it basically equates to acknowledging, well, she made a mistake to have put China in that position in the first place. And that's simply not a tenable position in China's domestic politics today. So the conclusion is, well, China will gradually adjust its position on Russia down the road, but it's not going to happen during this war. Simon, back to you for a moment and two questions to you. Uh, response first on the, the point that Curtis made, which is that, you know, there's no real consensus on ASEAN um, because they're torn between, you know, these two these big powers. Some countries are torn between them. And secondly, also your, your view on uh, from where you sit on on the China factor in all this. Thank you, Namal. On ASEAN, I want to humbly point out to the UNGA voting. Uh, I, I don't mean just the feet result because of Myanmar's uh, representative being the previous NLD representative. But with that, you can see that I agree with Curtis that no one wants to incur uh, Russia's wrath, but I don't agree there's no consensus. Condemning the invasion uh, is clearly there because we are all small and medium-sized countries. In fact, uh, Indonesia led off before Singapore. But Curtis is also right that no one has taken the same steps forward, so nobody has sanctioned like Singapore. Historically, of course, Vietnam's vote is a question of practicality. Its arms come from Russia. It cannot do very much. But my Vietnamese friends must be thinking of how to wean themselves off that dependency. So I would say that ASEAN has come to a low level of consensus, but and there is no need to do more. Singapore does not need to ask other countries before we act in our own interests. And we mustn't also deny the Vietnamese or others voting according to their interests. Uh, on the ASEAN citizen, though, I, I do think there will be a big effect both ways. Curtis pointed to the rising costs and some lost opportunities. I, I don't mean to negate this, but I do think that worrying about visa cards is less a problem than what is happening in Kyiv. And when we see that translated through the television and media, including your newspaper, um, I think that the citizens of ASEAN will feel very strongly of the wrongs being done. And though they will suffer some pain for it. They, they won't say, well, let's pretend nothing happened. Let's just keep doing business with Russians as we did in the past. So we really are seeing a kind of a slight division between our economic interests. We want a recovery from the crisis and the pandemic, but also our sentiments and value base when we see such horrific images of the carnage. On China, I'm glad Yunsun and I agree. I was telling the Europeans, and I strongly believe this, China is for China first. You can be a friend without limit, but you have to look after yourself. 
there is the growth slowdown. That oil price hike is about 1% off for China, which is huge. Um, there is a jobs concern. There is a pandemic surge is happening. And there is that domestic uh, process to put President Xi into the third term. These must all come before any so-called friendship. China is in opposition. I don't think it will go further to expose itself to any harm of sanctions. Even with Joe Biden not calling President Xi, I don't think that President Xi would have done it. Thanks, Simon. It's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Vietnam and the weapons that it gets from, from Russia because India, that's one of the factors contributing to India's position as well, which is, uh, which is another factor. Anyway, uh, back to you, Curtis, for a moment. Could you, uh, any, any comments uh, further to that? No, I think the, the reality, uh, in a strange way, uh, it, it comes back to the former U.S. president, President Trump, who said very clearly, you know, I was elected to be president of the U.S., not of the world. Uh, and I think when we look at each country's reaction, you clear. I would love countries to speak up more on what is going on in Ukraine, to take actions to to, to uh, stop what Russia is doing on Ukraine. But I think the the very real situation uh, is that countries again need to do what they think is best for their own citizens, for their own businesses, uh, and to your point about for their own defense. You know, we focus understandably, you know, because where I'm based uh, in Southeast Asia uh, on ASEAN just now. But when I think of uh, to our west, to South Asia. Uh, really all of South Asia, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, and India, when you look at their votes and their statements at the UN, uh, it clearly underscores that connection between some of them, India, for example, and Russia, and what they need to do uh, to preserve that. You know, when I think about India, it's not just about, I think Russia, I, I saw one figure that provided some 70% of their weapons, uh, but India, like many countries, needs oil. Uh, they need energy. Um uh, and if you were a business person, is this an opportunity to buy things on the cheap? Uh, and so I think each country needs to think through uh, what is right for their own nation, their own citizens. Uh, but I do hope that it's not just rhetoric when countries say they also pay attention to issues such as human rights, such as the issues uh, of sovereignty of a nation and how we must stand up uh, for other nations. Um, uh, and so when I, I think about these and other conversations, of course, you know, as an American, I would like countries to do more. But I must recognize that countries also need to balance it with what is best in their views uh, for their own citizens. Yes, yes. It's fascinating, actually, how all these these big Asian powers have had to sort of reevaluate their, their relationships with one another in, in, in the wake of this, uh, this ongoing crisis. Now, Yunsun, last word from you, back to you. We will wind up in a couple of minutes, but last word to you. What, are, what do you see going forward uh, and what are the lessons of Ukraine? Uh, I think the Chinese are taking a lot of lessons from Ukraine. Uh, the first one is, well, if you're really considering a military invasion of Taiwan, don't do it. Because uh, the war in Ukraine just revealed so many so many factors that could affect the uh, the result on the battlefield. Although I think most people would agree that if Russia really, um, really pushes for it, Russia is going to win in the end. But the cost and also the position that it puts Russia in, it's just unthinkable. I think the Chinese look at the Russia lack of progress on the battlefield in horror. And they look at how this war is being basically broadcast on social media and agitating this global public opinion against Russia. And they cannot help but imagine that, well, what if it's China? What if it's China against Taiwan? And then China is put in that position. And last but not least, this non-military deterrence or non-military punishment 
of uh, of Russia by uh, U.S. and its allies and some of its partners. I think the Chinese never really thought very seriously that financial sanctions or trade sanctions would play a determining role in their decisions about Taiwan. But now I think they really think about, well, even if there's no U.S. military intervention, which is still a question given our strategic ambiguity on Taiwan, um, just as if financial and economic sanctions are going to create unimaginable consequences for Chinese economy, for China's position in the whole world, and China's relationship with the, with the rest of the world. So I think if there's any... Um, I hate to say this, any positive takeaway uh, from this war, at least on the China angle, which is I think this has postponed the Chinese military plan or military invasion of Taiwan for quite a number of years. Excellent points. Thank you. Yunsun, Curtis, Chin, Simon Tay. It was great having you on Asian Insider. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope you can come on in one of my future episodes as well. Thank you. Thank you, Nama. Thank you. Thank you. So that nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Like us and rate us.